0: forward to an enjoyable time in God's Word together, even though there are beetles flying everywhere. Thank you to the ladies who got here early to try to vacuum them all up, but they're relentless, aren't they? I'd like to mention that this is the last week. Jim and Joni will be with us for this season as they return back to the way over to far eastern Wisconsin. And uh, it's been good to have them this summer. We've enjoyed their fellowship, their example, and their encouragement. So be sure to uh, remember to pray for them as they f- as they will for us in this coming months. And we look forward to uh, next spring. Really looking forward to next spring already, actually. So, yeah, we can just skip winter, can't we? I'd just like to uh, ask for uh, if you guys would consider praying for a uh, good friend of. Our and eyes friends of Lauren eyes, a, a pastor, a friend of ours, Sean, and his wife Jill. They found out Jill has stage four cancer just this past week. Um, they're yo- they're a young, young, younger couple. Well, everybody's young in my eyes these days, but but um, continue to pray for them. As uh, um, Pete, who's spoken here over a few times recently, it's uh, he's up there and speaking for them in Grand Rapids this uh, this morning, and uh, so keep Sean and Jill in your prayers, if you would, please. Okay. Scripture reading this morning is coming from Genesis 17, starting with verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am almighty God. Walk before me and be blameless, and I will make my covenant between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And ye shall be a father of many nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and will make nations of you and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you and their generations. For an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your descendants after you. Also, I give to you and your descendants after you the land in which you are a stranger. All the land of Canaan as an everlasting possession And I will be their God. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your goodness and grace, Father, for you are an almighty God, an awesome God. Father, you're a God of love and kindness and goodness, of truth and justice. And Father, thank you that you have expressed that love to us, especially in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who paid such a tremendous price, the greatest price that could be paid, not only dying physically for us, Father, but to pay for our sins as well. For you laid on him our iniquity, our sin. And, Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful that he rose victorious over over sin, death, hell, and the grave so that we could have eternal life and we could be forgiven. We could have that future hope of eternal glory with you. And, Father, we rejoice in that this morning. We rejoice in our Savior this morning, and we give you the thanks and praise. And, Father, may our worship before you be acceptable this morning. But Father, may we express an attitude of worship as we approach your word as well, that we might come before your word in humility and awe and respect, that we might accept your word at face value and and stand faithfully upon your word. May your word be our source of truth, the only source of truth, for you are a God of truth, and may we stand upon it. So be our teacher and guide today. And for those who are here today, Father, may you draw our hearts to you, may you give us a greater understanding of your person, of your will, and your work. And, Father, that we might grow to love you more and to be willing to serve you more. And, Father, we do pray for those who are in need as well. We think especially of Jill this morning, Father, and her family, her husband and children, that you would uphold them and strengthen them. And, Father, you know the desire of loved ones is to see healing be brought to her life, Father. But whatever your will may be, may you comfort them, encourage them, and strengthen them and uphold them along the way. And Father, for others here who may have needs that are unspoken and unknown, Father, that we might realize that you are a present help in trouble. You are a God who who is ever with us, will never forsake us. And Father, we pray that you'd watch over each one of us, that we might look to you, that we might find comfort in your love, we might find rest in your sovereign care. And Father, that you might uphold and strengthen us for whatever you, you have for each of us. And Father, we pray for our community. We just pray that you would help us to be a concern for those around us, those who need to know Christ, those who need to find help and healing and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, and help us to shine as lights, to love as, as Jesus loves, and to, and to fulfill your commission to us, to bring the good news to those around us. And Father, we pray for our world today. It seems in such disarray. We pray for those in Israel, for those who have suffered losses. Father, we just pray that you would comfort and uphold those and, and protect those who are there yet, Father. And we just pray that Our world would realize that you are a God who is in control and that we can turn to you and trust you. And so, Father, we give thanks for each one who is here today. We just pray that together that we might worship you, that we might learn of you, that we might serve you. And so may our service glorify you today and may now as we open your word, you be our teacher and guide. In Jesus' name, amen. When you look around us today, the world is in disarray, isn't it? It is disturbing and um, discouraging in reality, and even when you consider the brutality that mankind is bringing upon one another and all that's going on. So it it causes us to ask, what is going on? And we know we have a God who is sovereign. He is ruling over all. And yet we might ask ourselves, well, what is going on? What is God doing with Israel? What's going on in the Middle East? And maybe is the end near? We might be asking ourselves. And so... This morning, we're going to take some time from our study of the patriarchs. We've been looking at the the patriarchs as we study the book of Genesis and look a little bit about about what the Bible says, what God has to say about Israel, about history, and about the future today. And that's why we read this passage of Genesis 17 to begin with today, a passage we've looked at in the past, a a promise that's been repeated to us in our study of Isaac and Jacob of recent weeks. The promise that God gave to Abraham called the Abrahamic Covenant concerning their possession of the land. And we know there's three parts of that promise that God was going to make them a blessing and God was going to to make of them a great nation and God was going to give them the land and as well as then that fourth important part that God was going to bless the whole world through them which Galatians tells us fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ as they provided for us the Savior, the Messiah. And And yet we recognize throughout the Bible this reaffirmation of the promise of the land because that's really what this conflict is all about, isn't it? About possession of the land. And yet throughout the scriptures we see repeatedly God repeating to to Israel and to um, Abraham and his descendants the possession of the land. If you jump back to chapter 15, we find in verse 18 on the same day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham, saying to, th- to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, river Euphrates. And so what we really see when you consider the land that God has given them, in reality, it's larger than the nation of Israel is today, isn't it? If you look at a map of those scholars who, who evaluate the scriptures, when you think of the river Euphrates, it's that travels through Iraq and up into Syria to to the east, and then it says all the way to the river of Egypt, the Nile River, to the west, and so we have we have a land that includes all of Lebanon and about half of Syria to the north to, in, on today's map, almost half of Iraq to the east, all the way to a portion of Egypt to the Euphrates River, including this most of the Sinai Peninsula, and about ninety percent of Jordan to the east and south, and so the what what we see God's promise to Israel is much larger than the land they're even fighting over today, than that little piece of land, that little sliver of land is only a portion of God's original promise to them and that something that God gave to them. And God owns the land, and he has a right to give it to whom he chooses. does he not? If you turn over to Genesis 35, here you know, this is just jumping a little ahead in our study, we find this covenant reaffirmed to Jacob, he, which is our, our present study at the moment, but a couple chapters ahead. Chapter 35, look at verse 9. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he had come from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. Your name shall not be called Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you, and to your descendants after you I give this land. And then God went up from him and, and, and in the place where he talked with him, and Jacob set up a pillar, and so on. And so we see this covenant originally given to Abraham, affirmed to Isaac, reaffirmed to Jacob here regarding the land at the time here when God changed his name to what is now the name of the nation of Israel. And if you go down further, we won't read it, but in chap- verse 23 of this chapter we find... Here then the, the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel listed, which are the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. These are the descendants to whom God has given this land. That is unquestionable in scriptures. It's repeated over and over again in scriptures that God gave the land to the descendants of Jacob, to these 12 tribes of Israel. Now we know, as I mentioned the map, that that land was never fully possessed. We know that God had... Led them into the land initially under Joshua to lead them into the land of promise. If we want to see that, let's turn to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1, we're going to be turning some pages this morning, so I hope you're ready. Taking some notes because there are a multitude of passages that contribute to this topic, and we're just going to scratch the surface in reality. Joshua chapter 1 here, when Joshua's about to lead Israel to the land of promise, Moses had passed on, and God had appointed Joshua as the one to lead Israel. Just start with the first verse of the first chapter. After the death of Moses, a servant of the Lord, it came to pass that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, the children of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon I have given you, as I said to Moses. Even from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea towards the going down of the sun shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you nor forsake you. So here, once again, we find this land promise reaffirmed as God encourages them to go in and take what he has given them. Well, we know they never fully possessed the, even the portion of the land they were in because in passages such as the Deuteronomy chapter 20, God tells them that when you go in, you are going to utterly destroy him, eliminate completely any, any leftovers of the people of this land. And that might seem brutal to us. You know, people might ask, well, why did God have the right to drive other people out of the land to give it to his chosen people, Israel? Well, let's go back to Genesis 15, if you would, please. I should have told you to put a marker there. Let's pick it up in verse 12 here. We'll we'll see maybe some of the reason God was operating in this way. Verse 12 says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham, and behold, horror and great darkness fell upon him. Then he said to Abraham, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. Now we believe that's their their stay in Egypt. God is prophesying to Abraham to tell them that You know, this this promises that God had given to Abraham was not going to be fulfilled in his lifetime. And God's giving him a glimpse. What's going to happen? They're going to spend 400 years in Egypt. And we know that's exactly what happened. When When they ended up in Egypt, because of the famine, they stayed there for 400 years until Moses led them out. In verse 16, it says, And also the nation whom they serve I will judge, Egypt, And we know God buried them in the depths of the Red Sea, or many of them. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, for you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now, that's a key phrase here. And the Amorites are a description of the people of Canaan. And what God is saying here is, I'm giving the Amorites 400 years to turn to me. That's the essence what he's saying. I says, I'm going to allow Israel to, to not only be in slavery in Egypt, but to grow in Egypt, to come up with great possessions out of Egypt. But I'm not really giving the Amorites at the same time in God's sovereign plan 400 years to turn to Jehovah God. That's a lot of, lot of mercy, isn't it? That's a lot of patience as God's giving the people the land. You know, we often see in the Bible, you know, a, a, a sectional view of history because the Bible follows the nation of Israel. Well, obviously there's many other nations in the face of the world going on, and here we get a glimpse of the fact that God was working among the Canaanite people to give them that opportunity to turn to him. And obviously they did not. And that is why God was dispossessing them of the land when under Joshua. Because God was not only fulfilling his promise to Abraham and his descendants, but he was also judging the people who had refused him, who had rejected him. And so when Joshua led that campaign, we find that Israel never really fully possessed the land. They got tired of fighting. They got tired of, of, of battling with the Canaanites. And they didn't fulfill God's command to fully destroy them, any living thing. It sounds brutal, but God was judging them. But God had warned them. He says, if you don't, they're going to affect you in a bad way. And I'm paraphrasing, but those many passages in Scripture says, if you do not el- eliminate them, they're going to turn you away from me. And we know that's exactly what's happened, isn't it? It, We find Israel oftentimes adopting the culture of the ungodly. They did not dispossess them. They did not eliminate them. And exactly what God had told them happened. You know, in Deuteronomy 28, we find one of the passages in in which Moses warns them, Of the blessing and cursing of obedience versus disobedience, and the obvious thing is, if you follow me, God says I'll bless you, and He's going to fulfill. And God intends for His children to live full and blessed lives. But if you turn from me, He says I'm going to curse you, or judge you, to discipline you, and that's because He's a loving Father, and we must remember that God's not a vengeful God. And some people like to paint the picture that God was just a mean, vengeful God in the Old Testament. No, He's a loving God. He gave the Amorites 400 patient years of their ungodliness for an opportunity to turn to Him. And with Israel, the reason he disciplined them is to turn them back to himself because that is the best place we can be as people, is right with our God. That's how God's our creator. He's designed life, and he's designed life to be lived in relationship with him and walking with him. And God judged Israel because they turned from him in order to return them to him. Yet we find throughout the Old Testament this cycle of, in Israel of faithfulness, and then apathy, and then then disobedience, and then the judgment of God comes, and then we find their repentance and their restoration, and it's like, the, it's like a wheel round and round it goes throughout Israel history. That's been their cycle, which is maybe often the cycle with all believers when we when we have a tendency to get sloppy in our lives. In Isaiah chapter 5, God uses analogy of a vineyard, and the nation of Israel was their vineyard. He planted a vineyard and it brought forth wild grapes, he said. And that's the Book of Judgment. He says, I, I planted a vineyard to bring forth sweet and f- sweet and blessed fruit, and it brought forth wild f- grapes. And, and because of that, God was going to judge them. And the compromise we see in Israel throughout the Old Testament it was both a moral compromise and a spiritual compromise. We see them adopting their ungodly lifestyles and their idol-worshiping religion. We see both. And God would judge them because of that. The Book of Judges is filled with that cycle, isn't it? If you've read the Book of Judges, it's just that round and round it goes from, from faithfulness to, to spiritual apathy, to judgment, to repentance, to restoration. Well, then we come to, eventually, to the Assyrian captivity, when Israel became so disobedient towards God that God allowed a nation to defeat them. This nation had marched. God says, no one's going to be able to stand before you going into the promised land, and yet around 8732, the northern kingdom was taken captive by Assyria. It was completely defeated. In fact, it's never recovered. It's never been restored. And some people call it the lost ten tribes, and they're not lost to God, but they've been completely scattered ever since that time because of the wickedness of their sin, and they're they're turning to ungodly lifestyles and idol worship. In fact, Assyria at that time was ready to conquer the southern kingdom of, of Israel we call Judah, but God didn't allow them to enter Jerusalem. But you'd think that Judah would have taken that as a warning, that God was bringing his his people into judgment because of their disobedience. And yet in 606 B.C., God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, did he not, under the Babylonians, to conquer Judah and to bring them captive and and ransack Jerusalem. Judgment God was bringing upon them. And and yet God allowed them to return. Seventy years later, as prophesied by Jeremiah, Israel returned to the land in the, in the effort, first of all, to rebuild the temple under Ezra. If you read the book of Ezra, that's what it's all about, and to restore worship in, in Israel. Well, then s- shortly later, Nehemiah, under Nehemiah, Israel returned to rebuild the city, and they rebuilt the city walls, did they not? But if you turn to the book of Haggai, which is right towards the end of the Old Testament, we find a concerning thing at this time. When God led Israel back to the land after their Babylonian captivity under Nebuchadnezzar, God allowed them to the return, we find that though they had returned to the, the land, had, their hearts had not returned to their God. These last three books of the Bible, haggai Zechariah and Malachi, were written right after the time, around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, the time of the return of the exiles to Jerusalem, But notice what it says here in Haggai chapter 1. Let's pick it up in verse 5. He says, Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He wants them to take a look at themselves. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but do not have enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to be put into a bag with holes. Now, that's sparseness, you might say. God says, look at yourselves. You, you don't have enough. You're, you're almost in poverty. You know, and many of us know what it means to get a, put a paycheck into a pocket with holes in it. But he says, this shouldn't be the way. He says in the next verse, consider your ways. He says, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, it blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because my house that is in ruins, while well, every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and the grain and new wine and the oil and whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. And he tells them that because they had abandoned the work of the Lord. the responsibility at that time, what God had called them to, was to rebuild his house, the temple. And yet, instead of doing that, they were, just, they were all rebuilding their own homes. They were padding their portfolio, so to speak. They were making their life comfortable, and they had ignored the work God had called them to do. And what this, as you read on in these books, you find out that what ha- what's happened to Israel is though God brought them back to the land miraculously and enabled them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, their hearts were far from Him. They had not returned spiritually to Him. They had not, they had not put Him first in their lives. And thus it was a bleak return, spiritually bleak return to the land at this time. And following these three books then, as we continue thinking of the history of Israel, we find what we call 400 silent years between the Old Testament and New Testament, between Malachi and Matthew. 400 years in which there was no recorded revelation from God written to his people. There were dark, spiritually dark years, and all a result of the darkness of their hearts, of apathy, of the rejection of the truth of God. And this was the cultural condition that Jesus was born into. This was the period of time when Jesus was born into Israel in which they had departed from God. In fact, they had reinvented their own religion. It was called Judaism, but it was no more than a system of religious works and and doing good. And so Jesus was born into that. And though there was always a remnant, at that time many people followed Jesus, believed on him, and yet as a nation it rejected him. John 1 says he came unto his own, and his own received him not. They're the ones who put them on the cross. They're the ones that rejected and crucified the Messiah. Now we know ultimately that was God's sovereign plan. Jesus himself recognized it was God that was going to allow him to go to the cross when he asked God if if this cup, cup can pass from me, if there's any other way to accomplish your will. And what was God's will? It's to save us. It's to rescue us. And so God sovereignly turned the rejection of the nation of Israel into the the satisfactory payment for our sins on the cross. 1 John 2 2 says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but also for the sins of the whole world, because God laid on him the iniquity of us all. And And though the nation of Israel pierced his hands and his feet, crowned him with thorns, beat him, mocked him, and ridiculed him, during those hours of darkness, we believe, At the end of which Jesus cried, my God, my God, why has you forsaken me? We believe that God laid on him. God bruised him with our sins. He took our sins upon himself. And so God in his sovereign plan was not only allowing Israel to reject the Messiah, but God turned that into the salvation of the world. You know, that was the high point of God's plan to rescue people. It was the low point of the spiritual apostasy of Israel. They rejected God himself, the Messiah. They killed the creator, so to speak, as a a man when they hung him on the cross. And because of this, they would be judged once again. And even Jesus predicted their judgment in Luke 19, verses 43 and 44. It says this, when Jesus speaking to or of Jerusalem, he says, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close in on you on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. You did not know. You did not recognize the time when Jesus would come. And we know that's exactly what happened as God disciplined Israel when Roman General Titus around eighty seventy leveled Jerusalem and captured his people and they became under Roman rule. And today, Israel and Judah have been scattered people ever since. Though they returned in part to the land, they are still, they say, more Jews living in Brooklyn than there are in Israel. I don't know if that's still true. But the Jews are scattered all over the world because they are under the judgment of God. So what's God doing in the meantime? If God's chosen people, his blessed people, the people that should have bounty, the people of the Haggai's book should have been living in, in bounty and blessing but were living sparsely because they had turned from God, What's God doing in the meantime? Well, in the meantime, he's building his church, isn't he? He's chosen a special people to be the bride of Christ, to be, to be the body of Christ. Jesus said, I will build my church when he said Israel will be laid aside. And so there he, is, he is building his special people, his body, his bride, was through the gospel. Now, does that mean it excludes Jews? Absolutely not, because the Bible says, whosoever will may come. The gospel is open to anything. God is disciplining Israel as a nation. And that's important to recognize. As a, corporately as a nation, they are under the discipline of God. And so the New Testament addresses this. Let's go to Romans chapter 9. As we consider the present state of Israel, at least at the, at the time this was written, Romans chapter 9. And we'll see where they fit in this program. Because there are some today who believe that God is through with Israel once and for all. He's just, they dumped him, so he dumped them. Well, God doesn't work like people works. God is ever faithful. The Romans chapter 9, just a few verses, this, this 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 section of Romans 9 through 11 is much about Israel and the church. Well, we'll just pick out some highlight passages. Verse 30. Here it says, "What shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained righteousness even the righteousness of faith? But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness. Why?" because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion or Jerusalem a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So first of all, Paul here identifies the problem. Israel has rejected salvation by faith alone. He said the Gentiles who really as a whole weren't seeking after God, but God seek them. God reached out to them. God offers the offer of salvation to the whole world. And and it allows us to attain righteousness because that righteousness is necessary to enter heaven, but we attain that by faith. Second Corinthians five twenty one indicates to us that we are when we are saved, we are given the righteousness of Christ. It says, "He hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin." Jesus, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. A lot of people think that the way you get to heaven is by is by providing your own righteousness, doing good works and good deeds, being the best you can be. But that was Israel. They sought it through works, through the keeping of the Old Testament law, specifically the Ten Commandments, rather than by faith. And that's why God rejected them, because they rejected the Savior, the Messiah, and His offer of salvation freely through His death, burial, and resurrection. So they're in a state as a nation of unbelief. And today the nation of Israel, even though there are some in the land, is by and large irreligious, if not Judaistic, or some other religion. They are not Christian. There are Christians in, in, in Israel, but there are few. They, but they are those who have accepted the Messiah. If they're Jews, you might call them Messianic Jews. But they have rejected God's plan for salvation in the person of the Messiah. But God's not through with them. Even though they're in a present state of unbelief in their state of discipline. Let's go to Romans chapter 11. Let's just jump over there. And let's read... With verse 11. And he says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? In other words, they've stumbled over the stumbling stone. The stumbling stone was Jesus Christ. They stumbled over the message of grace, as many do, by the way. Sometimes when you share Christ with an individual and salvation is by faith alone through Christ alone, they'll say, that's too easy. And then choose, they, they, they reject that message and say, I'm going to just do it my way, which is being the best I can be, because that way I can pat myself on my back. And they'll say, look what I've done. And the message of grace is often rejected. And and sometimes you wonder, why do they reject free? Free is good. Salvation is freely provided through the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a free gift that God gives to us. And they stumbled over that because their program during these 400 dark years was to get to heaven by keeping the Ten Commandments, and especially with a big emphasis on circumcision, wasn't it? Well, have they stumbled that they should fall then? I mean, God threw with them. Did God dump them? Certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And since God uses their fall, their, their stumbling, to provide salvation to all. Because when they rejected Jesus, God took that to accomplish our salvation, the salvation for the whole world. Verse 12, now if their fall is, is riches for the world. And by the way, there's no greater riches than to know Christ. No greater riches. You know, someone has said many times over, you can't take it with you. You can try to be buried with all your toys, but you might need a pretty big coffin. It doesn't matter. It'll stay in the ground. You can't take it with you. The greatest riches is to know you're gonna, where you're going to live for all eternity. Is there anything more important in life? Anything more important to pursue than to know Christ and to know that you're saved for all eternity rather than pursuing the simple pleasures of life for your 70, 80, 90 years here? True riches, isn't it? And their fall brought riches to the world, and their failure, riches for the Gentiles. How much more than their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am apostle to Gentiles, I magnify my office, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh, and save some of them. For if their being cast away or set aside is a reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so on. Now this is beginning to indicate that though they have been laid aside, though they are under discipline, in a state of unbelief as a nation, God says they're going to be brought back to life as a nation. Doesn't doesn't He? Jump over, jump ahead here in ch- this chapter to verse 25, where it says, For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. lest you should be wise in your own opinions, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. God has a program, that they're blind for the time being until God is through doing what he's doing with the Gentiles. What is he doing with the Gentiles? I will build my church the universal body of Christ, the bride of Christ. And we know someday God's going to present that church to Jesus Christ as the ones he loved and died for. But when that's complete, God is going to turn back to Israel. Verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, for this is my covenant I make with them when I take away their sins. Wow, that's... That's startling, isn't it? He says, I'm not through with them. I haven't set them aside. And so the beliefs today that God is through with Israel or that today, you know, Israel in the Old Testament was the church and the church was in the Old Testament and all that stuff. Today, Israel's in the church is, is not the case. What we see in, in God's record of history and what God's plan for the future is two separate programs. God's special chosen people, Israel, who are an earthly people who are looking forward to a physical kingdom that has not yet been fulfilled. And we have God building his spiritual entity, the church, the body of Christ, which, which will be completed when he says so, and then when the rapture occurs, when God takes us all home, does it not? Now I want you to look, one more, look at a couple more verses here. Let's read verse 28. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, and they, because of their unbelief, they, they harassed and persecuted Christians. But concerning the election, God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the Father's. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Key phrase there. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. God made a promise to Abraham. He made a promise to David concerning a king and kingdom. He made a promise to Israel concerning the land. And and Paul says that's irrevocable. God just didn't just take the contract and tear it up and say, well, I'm through with it. He says, no, God made a promise. He's going to keep it. And that's really the key. And I want you to turn next to Hebrews chapter 8. Because... Here we find one of the prophecies. This is a a record of a prophecy written in Jeremiah 31 here in regards to the new covenant for Israel, his new plans. And this is a prophetic passage, chapter 8, starting with verse 7, where he says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's the Mosaic covenant, Ten Commandments and all that went with it, Then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. They are under discipline. For this is the covenant I will make with them with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people none of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother saying know the lord for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them for i will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds i will remember no more in that he says a new covenant he has made the first obsolete and now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away And so the Old Covenant, which Israel was clinging to for righteousness, the Ten Commandments, they thought that's how you get to heaven. God says that didn't work because you can never attain righteousness through good works because we're sinners. But righteousness comes one way by faith. And he says the days are coming when they're going to be restored. That's what the New Covenant's about. It's about the restoration of Israel to the place of relationship with Jehovah, to the place of blessing under his hand. And that's what God has planned for Israel. Now, we might say, when is that going to, that going to occur? And as we consider the, the, the world around us today, we recognize that, that the table is being set for, the, for that to occur because someday Jesus is going to return. And we believe it's at that return, he's going to accomplish a few things at the se- during his second coming. Revelation seven says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, Amen. Someone told me the other day that they wondered about this promise years ago, before we had CNN and the internet and social media. How could every eye see him? And some believers were convinced that the rapture couldn't come yet because we didn't have the ability to, for the whole world to see him when he came. And I thought, this is—you know—I I thought, well, I've, when I was a young believer, I might be old enough to predate the internet, possibly, <laughs> and I didn't have any doubt that God could paint it across the sky for the whole world. Did He? couldn't he? Because it says, every eye will see him. God doesn't need the internet to get this accomplished, does he? going Every eye is going to see him. He is going to return. Turn with me, Will, if you will, to what Jesus had to say about this in Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. Now we know as believers that we won't be on the earth when this occurs. We, we, the hope of the church is, is the blessed return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's what Jesus says after in this passage in the Olivet Discourse when he's asked the question about when are all these things going to happen. Let's just read a few verses in verse 27. Here he says, For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For where the carcass is, there, will e- there the eagles will be gathered together. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from the one end of the heaven to the other. Now included in this vivid description of his return, And we know that after the church departs at the rapture, there will be a a seven-year tribulation period in which God is going to physically judge the ungodly world. We find Jesus here returning in that final judgment to put down the armies of the world. And yet, when he does or after he does, he is going to gather his elect from one end of the heaven to the other. He is going to gather his elect. And that's a reference to his regathering of Israel. Now, Keep that in mind. Let's go to Revelation chapter 16, if you would, please. Revelation 16. I hope you can pull this all together. A lot of information in, in one short message, at least short to me, maybe not to you. Revelation 16. Here we, we find this last great battle Defined as what we call the battle of Armageddon. Verse 12 of Revelation 16 says, Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its waters was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world to gather them to get to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Behold, I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked. And they see his shame, and they gather them together to the place in Hebrew called Armageddon. And so here we find that reference to the drying up the river Euphrates, that which runs up through Iraq and through Syria, and which God is going to make the way easy for for the armies of the world to gather together. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, we find a reference to Gog of Magog, to the nation to the north, And it's king called Rosh, as it's recorded in that chapter. Many believe that's a reference to present-day Russia, but we don't know for sure when that's going to occur. But it is obvious that there's going to be a confederacy of nations that are going to come together to rise up against Israel, to destroy Israel from the face of the earth, at at which time Jesus is going to return. If you turn to Revelation 19, since we're close by here, Revelation 19, we find... His return recorded for us. Verse 17 Then I saw an angel standing in the, s- the sun and cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captives, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses. And of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on a horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image, those who were cast alive in the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with a sword from which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on a horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Now, this is just one of many passages, New Testament and old, that refer to this awful, dreadful day of the Lord when Jesus comes to put down this, this uh, confederacy of people that rise up against Israel to defeat the beast and the Antichrist in, in the ca- and to cast him into the bottomless pit. And it's that time he comes to defend Israel. And so as we look today, we recognize that the stage is being set. Do we think the end is near? It's possible. As the nations of the world gather to, to seek to annihilate Israel, as they declare on the news, um, the Euphrates has not dried up yet. And yet there are other things that are going on. You know, one of the teachings of the, you find in Ezekiel is that there is going to be a temple built in the, during, in, during the millen- tribulation and millennium. And uh, the news tells you today that there's an effort, there's an organization that is determined to rebuild the Jewish temple on the Temple Mount, and uh, according to many, there's the f- much of the furniture has, uh, has already been built. The plans are drawn up. Materials are ready. And so the world's on that verge. And we're thinking, well, how in the world could there be a temple when they can't even, you know, agree about who owns the Temple Mount? And yet those efforts are, are in process. Now, I'm not saying that the Lord could return at any time because we believe that the next event for us is the rapture of the church. But, but the conditions are ripe, are they not? Because it seems to us that the world is spinning completely out of control. And yet we forget that our God is in control. He has a plan for his people. I want you to turn to Ezekiel 39, if you would, please. And Ezekiel 39. Because in the middle of all this, God is going to restore his people. And that's kind of been our theme today. God is not through with them. I don't want to ignore this passage. While you're turning there, I would mention these two verses from Amos chapter 9, verses 14 and 15 say, I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord our God. Many passages such as this that have not yet been fulfilled... You know, when your person reads the book of Isaiah, chapter 11 especially, where it talks about the lying down with the lamb and all those pi- pleasant pictures of peace and prosperity and, and the wonderful environment, those have not happened yet. Those are promises that God has given to Israel that are irrevocable. They are going to happen, but they're going to happen when the King of Kings and Lord of Lords returns to put down Gentile rebellion, the one world order, and establish his own government, and Israel will enjoy that time of bounty. Look at Isaiah, Ezekiel 39, verse 21. I will set my glory among the nations. All the nations shall see my judgment which I have executed and my hand which I have laid on them. So the house of Israel shall know that I am the Lord their God from that day forward. The Gentiles shall know that the house of Israel went into captivity for their iniquity because they were unfaithful to me Therefore I hid my face from them, I gave them into the hand of their enemies, and they all fell by the sword. According to their uncleanness and according to their transgressions, I have dealt with them and hidden my face from them. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will bring back the captives of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. After they have borne their shame and all their unfaithfulness, in which they were unfaithful to me when they dwelt safely in their own land, and no one made them afraid." When I have brought them back from the peoples and gathered them out of their enemies' hands, and I am hallowed in them in the sight of many nations, then they shall know that I am the Lord their God, who sent them into captivity among the nations, but also brought them back to their land and left none of them captive any longer. And I will not hide my face from them any anymore, for I shall pour out my spirit on the house of Israel, says the Lord God. A wonderful uh, description. At that time in which God has restored Israel, has gathered his elect from the four corners of the world. I want you to look at a couple other passages here. Daniel chapter 4, since we're right nearby, next book over, Daniel chapter 4. Because we need to remember here that we've just kind of scratched the surface at many of the passages historically and prophetically that describe what God is doing and has done with Israel, his future plans for Israel. And yet we must recognize that God is carrying out his plan, that the world is not spinning out of control. What's happening in the world is not random. It is not accidental, circumstantial. But God is the one who is orchestrating his plan for history. And one king that recognized that was the king who, Nebuchadnezzar, who had captured Jerusalem. And after God dealt with him, he says this, and it's worth reading this morning. Verse 34 He says this, and at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? What a wondrous description of here what was once an ungodly king a vicious king, to recognize the sovereign hand of God in his life and in the world. And that's what we need to take comfort in today. God keeps his promises. And though it may not look to it like it to us, and it might be a lot of theories that think that God's through with Israel, God's promises are irrevocable. And Israel is looking forward to the fulfillment of those promises, and you and I can look forward to God fulfilling his promises to us. We can trust him. We don't have to stress with what's going on in the world today. It's not that life may not get uncomfortable in, what, in whatever happens in this world we, while we are still here. But we know our God is in control, do we not? And I want to close this out by turning to Second Peter chapter 3. A passage that reaches a little beyond this, what the future coming tribulation and second coming and millennial reign, and yet it makes a wonderful point and leaves for us a challenge here this morning in light of these things that are going on. Verse ten. Oops, I'm in the wrong Peter. Hang on. Verse ten of Second Peter three. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That's the second coming, by the way, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the worlds that are in it will be burned up. This is at the end of the end of time. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in a holiness? and godliness, looking for and hastening for the coming day of God, because because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So as the day of the Lord extends beyond the tribulation of the time when he finally puts an end to this sinful creation, creates a new heaven and a new earth, it asks this question, in light of these things, what kind of persons ought we to be? When we look around us and see the craziness of the world events and all that's going on in the East. we should not only remember that our God is in control no one can stay his hand he's accomplishing his will but what kind of person ought we to be is the end near? you know the Bible tells us to live in light of his return ever since Jesus left the earth we're to live in light of the fact that he could come at any moment but as we see the signs developing whether this is the, the signs of the end or whether li- life will go on for another thousand years God, I think, is challenging us. Are there those in our lives, those we know that need to hear the good news? You know, if God would say on a certain date on the calendar that this is when I am coming, how urgent would we be to get the gospel, get the good news? And that's what Peter's saying here. What kind of people ought we to be? If we really believe this is what's going to happen, it should challenge our hearts. And when we see the, these things transpiring in the Mideast, it should, it should encourage us, challenge us to think, Okay, Lord, there are people in my life I've never shared Christ with, people I may be not even aware of. And we should, we should be that much more committed to the commission to which we're called to be his witnesses. Let's pray. Father, we went through this quite quickly this morning, some of the passages about your plan for history, what you have done in the past with your nation of Israel, your establishment of the church, what you plan for the future. And Father, ultimately, we, we are thankful that you are a sovereign God who, who controls all that goes on in this world. You work your work among the men. You set up kings and take them down. And Father, we don't know the days or the times, the times or the seasons. You tell us we're not going to know exactly when you're going to return. But Father, we see these things c- coming coming to pass that, that seem to fulfill and indicate that the time could be, the end could be near. And Father, may we take this challenge that Peter lays before us. Let's consider what ought, kind of people ought we to be if we consider that eternity may be be just around the corner. And so, Father, we give thanks for these things that you've revealed to us. May we understand them, and may we live in light of them. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.